All right, everybody. Uh, welcome back. It's been a little while, but a few things to talk about. Got a few questions this week, so uh, absolutely wanted to address some of the stuff out there. Uh, the first question is, when investing in the warrants of MRCWF, that was Mercer Park, who recently merged with Glasshouse, do you invest 2% portfolio maximum at the cost of the warrants, or do you calculate 2% based on the $10 future excise price per share? Say total portfolio is $100,000. Um, so first thoughts are, I don't have a, a 2% rule uh, when I'm investing in anything. Um, you know, if, if you look at the portfolio, we only hold, <laughs> you know, eight, nine names at this point, uh, which kind of by default, you know, leads you, leads you to determine that there's several positions well above uh, 2% in the portfolio. I, you know, uh, when I look at a lot of the historically really successful investors and, you know, Buffett has said it, uh, Ackman has said it, Munger has said it, Fisher said it, you know, all the, the really great ones that diversification for diversification's sake is, is a meaningless exercise in safety by diversification, especially nowadays where so much of the market is owned by hedge funds, index funds, mutual funds, you know, that all trade in unison. And the majority of the market is owned through these entities. So owning several different tech stocks, uh, you know, they're all going to trade the same because when the NASDAQ and the QQQ and all the index funds that follow the tech stocks sell off or, or, um, or uh, increase, they're all buying and selling those same stocks to be when that happens. So um, I, I prefer to invest more heavily in the things that I think are going to perform outside the market, right? So, I mean, you know, if the market sells off a thousand points, 90% of the market's going down. Uh, you know, the point is that maybe what you have doesn't go down nearly as much. And then the up days, it goes outside the market or, you know, events happen in a bear market that, or a down market um, that are <clears throat> so extraordinary with this company because of the reasons why you bought it and the, whatever the catalyst was you thought for value realization was that even if the market's down, this thing's gonna go up. Um, you know, and there's plenty of examples of that over the years, you know, American Capital, GGP, even Bank of America has risen through uh, a lot of flat markets or since we've owned it over the, you know, God, what's it been? It's been almost 10 years now. Um, we've owned it. There's been a lot of times where the market's just been flat and it just kind of grinds a little bit higher and, uh, you know, it's, it's been a great holding. So I, you know, I don't, I don't have a 2% rule. And, and to be honest, if I was, you know, if I had $100,000 in the bank to invest and I found a stock that I only thought was worth a $2,000 investment, that tells me that I don't have a lot of um, conviction in it and that I'm not quite sure of my thesis if I'm not willing to put a significant chunk of capital behind it. Um, so that tells me intuitively for myself that you know I need to keep digging, right? Because if I'm not willing to put 10% behind it because I don't have enough conviction to put 10% of a portfolio behind a stock, then why put 2%, right? Because then aren't you kind of gambling, right? Because you're really not sure you should put 10% because it's not that, you know, you, you're just not sure about the investment. Well, why risk 2% of it? Why risk anything if you're not 
as confident as you can be. Now, of course, you can be super confident and wrong, right? And that, that happens all the time in investing. Um, you can be super confident and knock it out of the ballpark. Uh, but, you know, I think, you know, having the courage, having the, what's it called, courage and convictions, right? If you're going to buy into something, uh, you know, buy into it where you, you know, Munger always says, if we, we could, instead of taking pieces of these companies, anything we invest in, if we could buy the whole company, we would. And I think that's the kind of outlook you should have. And then you just like, okay, these four, five, six, seven, eight holdings I have, I hold in this account or through various accounts, how much do I want to um, contribute to each? And honestly, I do it based on which one I have the most conviction in, right? And if it gets to a point where, you know, I have, you know, seven stocks in a portfolio and five, I'm just like, these are just slam dunk home runs. I'm like, well, these two, I'm not sure about, so I'll just make them one or 2%. Doesn't it make more sense to take that money and put it into the ones that you're really confident on who are just crushing it, right? Why, why, why intentionally reduce the potential gains you have in those stocks simply because you want to be quote unquote diversified um, and invest in various other stocks, either in the same sector or different sectors, just because you think you have to, right? So that, that's how I really look at, at stuff like that. So uh, to answer the question, the, the Mercer Park, um, you know, I took above a 2% stake, I could say. I'm very, very enthusiastic um, about that company. Um, you know, I've been saying for a long time that, you know, I, I did not invest in any publicly traded cannabis stocks since I am on the private side of that equation. Um, you know, you could see the issues that um, some of the larger companies are faced with and how the market is having a hard time putting that into evaluations of these companies. So they tend to whipsaw all over the place uh, as news comes out. You know, they're highly news sensitive, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I haven't owned any other than IAPR, which I don't really consider a, a pot stock, quote unquote, because they don't touch the plant, right? They're a landlord for cannabis companies and they're getting exceptionally high rents uh, and they have exceptional demand for their offering because they're one of the few people that do it. So um, that's why I've been invested in IAPR. Um, Mercer Park's a little different animal. A lot of the issues I've had with the publicly traded cannabis companies and some of my concerns is that they are all massive into cultivation. And a lot of these companies have cultivations indoors, right? And you can never, we will never grow as cheap indoors as you will in a greenhouse or as you will outside. You will always be the high cost producer when you're growing indoors. It's just simple math. Um, so there's concerns with some of those large MSOs um, when things go legal and all of a sudden now people are able to source cannabis at much cheaper rates from different parts of the country when interstate commerce is eventually allowed and it will be eventually so that makes a lot of the mso's right uncom slightly uncompetitive right if i have 10 dispensaries in 10 states and I'm able to purchase outdoor grown cannabis that costs a hundred pounds, hundred dollars a pound to grow. Why would I buy cannabis from someone in my own state that's growing at seven hundred dollars a pound or eight hundred dollars a pound when you equate for the various profit levels they're going to require? It's going to be much cheaper to get it from there. Um, the MSOs, by and large, have these indoor grows in the states that they operate in. So. 
Um, I'm not convinced they're going to maintain a huge pricing competitive advantage. I think they'll make it undercut in a, undercut in a lot of the market. Uh, may have asset write-downs in some of these large indoor grows. Uh, that's my concern with those. The reason I like Glasshouse and the reason um, I invested in them was A, uh, incredible management teams. Okay, Glasshouse has a top rate management team. Uh, Mercer Park, the group behind that from AYR, uh, which is another multi-site operator, fantastic management team, really well positioned in the space. Um, there are the ones behind the merger. Now Glasshouse has some outstanding brands, uh, Bella Thorne brand, other things like that. Some amazing partnerships they've just announced. And their dispensaries, I think, and their brands and their quality is, is top class in California, which is, you could argue, the epicenter of cannabis in the U.S. right now. So consider them the, you know, Starbucks if you're doing the coffee, you know, the uh, uh, whatever your best steakhouse is in that city. That, those are the kind of dispensaries they run. Now, the second part of the equation is cultivation. Now, as I've said before, I'm very concerned about cultivation. I don't have that concern with Glasshouse and Mercer Park because they have up to 6 million square feet of cultivation in greenhouse that is solar run off the grid. They are probably, well, they, based on what I can find, they will be or they already are the lowest cost mass producer in California. So they must be in the U.S. at this point. So you couple with you couple best-in-class management, top-notch product and facilities, and low-cost producer. That is going to be a fantastic, a fantastic, a fantastic combination. Typically, you know, your high-cost products or your, your luxury products also come with tremendous input costs, you know, quote-unquote, justifying the higher price. You know, they, they can't build a Lamborghini what they can build uh, a Ford Taurus for. Right? It's just impossible. So the Lamborghini is going to have to cost more. Well, can you imagine the margins if you could build that Lamborghini for the price of that Ford Taurus and still sell it for a quarter million dollars or half a million dollars, whatever they're going for? That's what Glasshouse and Mercer Park are building. Top flight experience, top flight products, top flight management, lowest cost producer. So I'm very, very, very excited for this. This, for me, this is one of those ones, uh, you know, there's going to be jumps and starts in it. And every time legalization starts talking about that, everything's going to jump. And then, you know, when Biden shits the bet on it again and doesn't do anything about it, it'll, they'll drop. But, uh, you know, legalization, legalization is coming. Uh, it is coming from state to state. It is coming um, on the state level. Uh, whether it happens on the federal level or not for the next one, two, three years, honestly... I don't think it matters. State by state by state is already legalizing. By the time the federal government gets its act together um, and people realize that Biden and the Democrats sold them a bill of, bill of goods on cannabis, uh, it's not even going to matter at that point. We're already roughly at about half the U.S. has either legalized or is seriously close to legalizing. Uh, so I don't think, um, there's not, I'm not worried about it at all. So I tucked tuck this one away. That's what I'm doing. And uh, I think it's going to be a huge winner in the uh, upcoming years. They just closed, closed the merger, so the financials are going to be a little scurry for the next quarter or two. You know, as you have, you're going to have reported 
financials, and then you're going to have financials X merger costs are going to show us an idea of how well the company's doing, and the company's doing really well, and they're running fantastic. So, um, you know, that that's where I really stand on that one. Uh, there was another podcast, an idea of just doing a podcast on cannabis. I'm going to do that next week. Um, I don't want to. Um, uh, I don't want to take the whole time right there because I do want to talk about uh, kind of what everyone's been screaming about for the last two or three weeks now is the uh, decision right before the Fourth of July by the Supreme Court uh, in the GSEs. And I had sold my GSE stocks I don't know, September, October, I think it was of last year. Uh, as I came to the realization, um, you know, it's funny. So when you're in something for a long time, you have what you think is happening, what you think is going to happen, what you think should happen based on your research and stuff like that. But in cases like this, in these court cases, it's the same thing when we invested in American Capital and Bank of America and GGP. You know, GGP, the, the thesis was that the banks, because of the recourse debt, are not going to be able to uh, attach other properties other than the singular property that loan was on. And if they can't do it, they had to refinance the loan. There were, you know, GGP, they beat MetLife, they beat two or three insurance companies in court for this. And like, okay, this thesis is solid because they're losing case after case after court. So even if the stock price was going up or stock price was dropping down, remember when Hovde came out with that short thesis and the price dropped 30% in two days? I knew he was wrong. I knew we were right because we were winning in court. And eventually, the banks are going to have to, or the insurance companies, whoever held the notes, were going to have to refinance that debt. That happened. Equity was money good. We made a ton of money. Bank of America, they were facing, you know, people were saying they were facing $200 billion in damages. They were going to bankrupt the bank. It was effectively dead. And I went round and round with, uh, what was that guy's name? Henry, um, oh, the old tech guy that started that... Business Insider, Henry, I don't know, whatever his name was, not important, but he was, you know, he was on the drama side, and we went back and started looking, and we found the research on these financial cases, and found they take two to five years to settle, and they settle for two to three cents on the dollar. So when we did the math on the lawsuits, the potential liability, or the realistic liability, was a small fraction, a small fraction of what people were claiming. So we bought into the stock, we bought into Bank of America more, and Bank of America started winning these court cases or settling them out of court for what? Pennies on the dollar. So then we knew the thesis was right. So no matter what the stock price did, I knew Bank of America wasn't going away. They didn't go away. The stock was going to be worth multiples of the five, six dollars we were buying it at. And it turns out that was true. Fast forward to the G and there's other ones, but I think the point's made. You have the GSC stock, you have a thesis, you have a theory, the government this wrong, government that wrong. You can't do this, you can't do that, but you're losing in court time after time after time. At some point in time, you have to stop and say, wait a minute. I've been in this investment for seven, eight years. We keep losing in court. We've had small, somewhat meaningless victories, not huge ones. Okay, our... You know, it wasn't we were ruled victorious and ruled for damages, right? The lower courts have thrown the cases out. At some point, you have to stop and take a look at this. Okay, is it realistic to expect the outcome we think we should get? And you have to, because, and this is the dangerous part. Something with the GSEs, there are so many voices out there that it's very easy with the Internet to focus on the voices that back the thesis that you have. Right? Isn't that called confirmation bias or something like that? 
you think A, B, and C, you read, oh, this other guy who has this job thinks A, B, and C, ergo, we are right. Five courts have said we're wrong, but me, this guy, this group of people, we all think we're right. We're all saying the same things. We're all picking out two lines of a 10,000-word opinion and saying, well, this is, this is our light at the end of the tunnel. Then you have to go to the government. Put the courts aside. Go to the government. Mark Calabria got into office with a singular goal. To get the GSEs out of conservatorship. A goal that was shared by Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. Who was less obvious about it. Less blunt about it. But no less had a priority of getting the GSEs out of um, conservatorship. It didn't happen. Not only didn't it happen, we are, in theory, no closer today than we were five years ago. Than we were eight years ago at getting the GSEs out of conservatorship. There have some, been some minor inconsequential changes to the preferred stock agreements that allowed the GSEs to retain capital. Everyone celebrated, but then the liquidation preference grows by the same amount. It's a zero-sum game. They're keeping capital, but they owe the government on the other side. And there seems to be this illusion that the government's going to voluntarily extinguish what they're owed. And I don't know if anyone's looked at the government's balance sheet lately, but the odds of that happening are just about zero. So, we're in this investment for seven, eight years. Hasn't gone right in court. The Fifth Circuit gave us a lifeline that allowed it to go to the Supreme Court. Right? The Fifth Circuit's decision is binding on no other circuit in the U.S. The reason it's put to the Supreme Court is because the Fifth Circuit decision contradicts other circuit court decisions. That's what triggers the Supreme Court. They are the ultimate arbiter of disputes between district courts or the Fifth Circuit district courts, whatever they are. That's what the Supreme Court's job is. We have these two courts they can't decide. We, we, we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're the moderator. We're going to tell everybody this is what the law says. So the Supreme Court ruling came out this week. And in my opinion, it ends the GSE saga. And you can really tell a lot. So a lot of the people were initially outraged at the decision. The Supreme Court screwed us, blah, 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 blah. You know, it's a big conspiracy, blah, 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 blah. I think all that's bullshit. If you read the decision and read it, read it as it is a book you've never read before, not a book you think you know what the outcome should be, and you're reading into it what you want to see and hear. The people who refuse to do that are now taking bits and pieces from some of the dissensions, right? They concur in part and dissent in part. The dissensions are really meaningless in the grand scheme of things. That's the judge's way of saying, you know, I disagree with this part of this decision. It's not binding on any of the court. It's basically them being allowed to say, hey, we don't agree in completeness on this one part of this, but we agree with the eventual outcome of the ruling. So the dissent, people are hanging their hats to some of the dissensions, and I did this too. First time the circuit court came out, and the, the one judge was talking about a banana republic, and that's not how we do things. Everyone latched on to that. Well, honestly, that doesn't matter. 
because the the other courts that whose opinions are informed on higher court or other court opinions, they base it on the opinion, not the dissension. The opinion of the court is the opinion of the court, not one justice out of five who disagreed with one part of the opinion. So let's go to the opinion and look at it. This is what they held. Shareholder statutory claim must be dismissed. The Anti-Injunction Clause of the Recovery Act provides that unless review is specifically authorized by one of its provisions or is requested by the director, no court may take any action to restrain or affect the exercise of powers or functions of the agency as conservator or receiver. Whereas here, the FHFA's challenged actions did not exceed its powers or functions. As a conservator, relief is prohibited. Okay? This is the part that most people are getting tripped on and where a lot of the arguments people are still making today are going to fail. The Recovery Act grants FHFA expansive authority in its role as conservator and permits the agency to act in what it determines is in the best interest of the regulated entity or the agency. So when the FHFA acts as a conservator, it may aim to rehabilitate the regulated entity in a way that, while not in the best interest of the regulated entity, is beneficial to the agency and by extension the public it serves. This feature of an FHFA conservatorship is fatal to the shareholder statutory claim. The Third Amendment was adopted at a time when the companies had repeatedly been unable to make their fixed quarterly dividend payments without drawing on Treasury's capital commitment. If things had proceeded as they had in the past, there's a possibility that the companies would have consumed some or all the remaining capital commitment in order to pay their dividend obligations. The Third Amendment's variable dividend formula eliminated that risk and in turn ensured that the tre all of Treasury's capital was available to backstop the company's operations during difficult quarters. Although the Third Amendment required the companies to relinquish nearly all of their net worth, the FHFA could have reasonably concluded that this course of action was in the best interest of the members of the public who rely on a stable secondary mortgage market. The shareholders argued that the Third Amendment did not actually serve the best interest of FHFA or the public because it did not further assert the objective of protecting Treasury's capital commitment. Then they go into details. And this is an interesting part. First, they claim the FHFA agreed to the amendment at a time when the companies were on the precipice of financial uptake, which would have allowed them to pay their cash dividends and build up capital buffers to absorb future losses. Thus, the shareholders assert sweeping all the company's earnings to Treasury increased rather than decreased the risk that companies would make further draws and eventually deplete all of Treasury's commitment. This is a key thing that people are still hanging their head on, that, the, that they did not, um, that they took the actions of a receiver, not a conservator, that they're winding down, not rehabilitating entities. And the Supreme Court is saying, you're wrong. But the success of the strategy that the shareholders taught was dependent on speculative projections about future earnings and the recent experience had given the FHFA region for caution. The nature of the conservatorship authorized by the Recovery Act permitted the agency to reject 
the shareholder's suggested strategy in favor of one that the agency reasonably viewed as a more, more certain to ensure market stability. Second, the shareholders claim that the FHFA could have protected Treasury's capital commitment by ordering the companies to pay the dividends in cash, in kind rather than cash. This argument rests on a misunderstanding of the agreement between the companies and Treasury. Paying Treasury in kind would not have satisfied the cash dividend obligation. It would only have delayed that obligation as well as the risk that the company's cash dividend obligations would consume Treasury's capital commitment. Choosing to forego this option in favor of one that eliminated the risk entirely was not in excess of the FHFA's authority as conservator. Finally, the shareholders argue that because the Third Amendment left the companies unable to build capital reserves, which FHFA lacked the authority to take without first placing the companies in receivership. This characterization is inaccurate. Nothing about the Third Amendment precluded the companies from operating at full steam in the marketplace, and all available evidence suggests they did. The companies were not in the process of winding down their affairs. That's it. It's over. What, what the Supreme Court just said is the FHFA's actions did not exceed their authority. They acted rightfully within HERA. If that's true, go back to your memory, if this, then that. If that's true, it's over. FHFA, according to the Supreme Court of the United States, did not exceed its authority as a regulator when it came to the Third Amendment. Folks, it's over. It's done. The Supreme Court just told you it's over. Clarence Thomas, who wrote the um, opinion, one of the more conservative judges, completely disagrees. He says, there is no basis for concluding that any head of the FHFA lacked the authority to carry out the functions of the office or that actions taken by FHFA in relation to the Third Amendment are void. He said that does not mean necessarily, however, that the shareholders have no entitlement to relief. Although an unconstitutional provision is never really part of the body of governing law, it is still possible for an unconstitutional provision to inflict compensable harm. The possibility that the unconstitutional restriction on the president's power to remove the director of the FHFA could have such an effect cannot be ruled out, and that should be resolved in lower court. So what is he saying? He says, yeah, it's possible, but what they're saying is FHFA acted within their authority you, you can argue that because Calabria was a director put in place that should not have been there, that all decisions he made that were made are done and over and should be reversed. What he's saying to you, what Thomas says, though, is that every director that voted on those opinions were legally there under the Constitution. They were legally appointed. And there's no evidence whatsoever that the president... Treasury or anybody at any time disagreed with the actions of FHFA. 
So he's saying, how can you argue that you were caused harm when the agency acted within a scope of knowledge, the directors were legally appointed, and B, there's no evidence the president ever disagreed with Calabria or wanted to remove him, but could not remove him to stop the actions that caused shareholders harm. So there's no damages. I, 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 I've, I read through the opinions. Uh, several times. Because honestly, when the prices collapsed when they came out, it's, you know, it's kind of what I do. I said, hey, you know what? Well, maybe these are good buys now. Right? Prices, I think, dropped 60, 70 cent that day, some even more. The preferreds got crushed. Maybe there's a shot. Maybe, you know, maybe, let me read to this again. Maybe there's a silver lining. I couldn't find any silver lining. I couldn't, figure any, I couldn't figure out any reason I would want to get back into these stocks. People are going to talk about Sweeney's Court, talk about Lambeth Court. Lamfort said initially that FHFA acted within its powers. Period. That's it. I don't know how else to go through it. Even the dissensions don't go a great way to talking about significant recovery for shareholders. So now we got to turn ourselves to the re so now most of the people still in it have pivoted from, you know, we're going to get we're going to we're going to win in court. This is going to be reversed. Shipart's going to save us. Fifth Star's going to save us. They realize that's not going to happen now. So now all attention is turned to recap and release. Again, it's been a decade. We are no closer today than we were 5 years ago as far as recap and release goes. I can honestly see a scenario where five to 10 years from now we are having the exact same conversation about these. What incentive does the government have to change what's going on with the GSEs right now? No one can answer that question. The government just won in court. What is gonna force them to make significant changes to the GSEs and run the risk of upending the housing market in the economy we're in right now. Can anyone tell me what incentive they have? They have none, they have zero. There's no reason for them to do it. It's not going to happen anytime soon. It's just not gonna happen. At least for the next four years. There is no scenario, a Democratic Congress, a Democratic president, IPO, Fannie and Freddie back out into the market. They have too much control, too much authority over housing now, having it exactly where it is. And that's where it's going to stay. It's... And, you know, people get pissed off when you have contrary opinions, but you just have to kind of sit back and look at this. If this wasn't the GSEs, if this was any other investment, would you still be in it? Would you have thought, hey, you know what? After 10 years, we've been 
pushing this 10-pound boulder up this mountain and it's gone nowhere, move on. Move on. A lot of people were still buying GSC stocks heading up to the Supreme Court decision. A lot of people held, could have cashed out last year and at least salvaged something, made some money, whatever you bought in. It's, it's over. It's over now. And I think the more time goes by, the prices of these are going to still keep going lower as people realize there's no light at the end of this tunnel. There's a lot of great theories on how a recap and release could work. There's a lot of really great spreadsheets and proformers out there that say, hey, this is what could happen if this happens. There's no reason for the government to actually entertain that decision at all. If Mark Calabria, whose singular goal when he came into FHFA was to get those out of conservatorship, if he could make no progress whatsoever on it, and don't tell me the amendments to the PS, this preferred stock agreements are uh, progress. They are not progress at all. They are, they are feel-good motions to make people think something was happening. They've changed nothing. If he couldn't make progress, I don't see how it's going to be done. There's too much opposition in Democratic Congress to hedge funds and things like that making a bundle off this if they do something that makes them a ton of money off a housing crisis. It's just not going to happen. Laugh for the next four years. And, you know, then you come into the whole thing of, you know, other it's like people want to scream and yell and fight and bitch and, and tweet that this is crooked, this is corrupt, the government this, the government that. Okay, great. The reality is your money's dwindling away while you scream and, 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 and throw fits over the unfairness of it. Move on. There are so many other stocks to buy that are doing perfectly well. You know, we thought we had a right theory. Turned out we were wrong. That's investing 100. You're not going to be wrong. I mean, you're not going to be right every time. You're going to be wrong, and you're going to lose money in, in investments. That's how it goes. Now, your job is to maximize the wins and minimize the losses. And if you're sitting underwater right now in the GSC is hoping for a miracle, you know, I think you're just hoping for a miracle. And, you know, yeah, sometimes they happen, but most times they don't. Um, so, I mean... I guess that's all I can say on that. I'm, I'm sure that pisses some people off, but it just it's, it's the reality of how I see the situation and how I've seen it and why in September, October last year, I changed my mind on this and I said, you know what, this is what, what, what we as a group were expecting to happen at that time is just never going to happen. And if it's not going to happen, I can put my money other places. I put my money into, you know, MRCWF and we've done really well <laughs> since then. So, I mean, that's... Just move on. Learn how to move on. Cut the cord and move on. If you have a relationship that sucks, cut the cord and move on. A friendship that, you know what, just isn't working that great, fucking move on. It's just, it's just the way it is. Um, all right, that's enough. So let's talk about oil. So all the oil stocks are rallying. Pipeline, pipeline stops are looking good. TPL's on fire. Um, you know, people are acting surprised by it, but it's not surprising. You know, if you if you shut down drilling on federal lands, you eliminate the own the the most cheapest, safest, and most reliable form of transportation of petrochemical products, which is pipelines. You basically eliminate the building of them. But as a society, we will consume more gas, electricity, and oil every year because our population grows. But you've restricted the obtaining of it and the transport of it. 
Is anyone surprised prices are going up? I mean, that's, that's economics 100, supply and demand. Demand keeps growing, you're constricting the supply and the access to it. What's going to happen? Prices are going to rise. It's, you know, I think it's, a, it's a, a wonderful decision by the Biden administration for the stocks that we own in those sectors. It's been fantastic. Uh, it's a horrible decision for the overall economy and for people, especially poor people. Right, energy energy tax energy prices are are a regressive tax. We all pay the same for our energy, and when the price of that triples, people on the lowest end of the scale suffer the most, or they go without. Right, you'll hear every winter, every summer, people dying with no AC, people dying with not enough heat in the winter, because energy prices spike like this. I don't see a scenario where they start to come down significantly this year, probably through next, to be honest with you. Um, supply is incredibly restricted. Um, future supply is not restricted. And But the key point is the, 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 the transportation of that supply is restricted. And that's going to be the big one. You know, you've seen pipeline companies, especially like look at Williams in the last month, Right. They, they've come to realize that, you know what, trying to build pipelines is just stupid. The pricing was still good on these things. Let's just go JV with people. Let's expand our footprint by taking pieces of what's already out there. Rather than spending hundreds of million dollars to get one permitted, to have the swallow toad in Arkansas stop a $400 million pipeline that's going to supply gas to the Appalachian Mountains. Right? I mean, as long as the toad don't die. You know? Dozens and dozens of hundreds of people would be, you know, severely distressed because of that decision. But, you know, as long as the toad's good. Pipelines are the safest, most reliable, most uh, 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 economical way to transport petrochemical products. The solution now is you put them on trains. And now we have roving oil trucks and gas trucks on the highways. Basically, we have roving bombs across the country now. Every year, we see a couple train accidents, massive explosions, complete towns are evacuated and wiped out because of the, the results of that. But we just don't want to build those pipelines. So, um, you know, as I said, the, the, you know, it was within Biden's first month he signed these orders. Um, I said then that this was going to be the next four years for, for energy and pipelines and gas, oil and gas companies was going to be a heyday uh, because those with stuff in the ground are going to bring it out and those who needed to expand won't be able to. So it's not much, it's, honestly, it's not much different than when the government went after the tobacco companies, right? It's, here's the thing. The government always thinks that they're regulating the big boys in the submission. The reality is what they do is they regulate competition out of the market, right? The higher... The cost of regulatory compliance is the larger the hurdle for the small upstart companies and the small upstart technologies that can make a difference because it makes it more expensive to bring that stuff to market. Perfect example, 19, in the 19, 1990s, the government went after tobacco companies, had this massive settlement. I think it was like $100 billion at the time, the tobacco companies. All this restrictive, no more advertising, no more sponsorships, no more this, no more that. So we crippled tobacco 
you know, tobacco will, will forever, you know, never be the same. The stocks, of course, collapsed. I was a buyer of Altria at that time, one of the best investments they ever made. But what did the government actually do? Well, the government partnered with the tobacco companies. What did the government do? The government went out and immediately, in all these states, governments immediately went out and sold tobacco bonds based on the future revenues of those tobacco companies paying those fines. So that they couldn't put the tobacco companies out of business because then they wouldn't get those revenues. They would default on all, those de- on all that debt. So they had to have the tobacco companies survive. Well, when you put all these restrictions on the tobacco companies, no advertising, no this product, no new products, no this, no that, you basically eliminated the chance or the opportunity for any new tobacco company to enter the market that may have had safer, cleaner, whatever kind of products because they couldn't advertise them. I don't think organic tobacco. I don't know, but think about it. So the, the three, four major players in the market, that was it forever. They were granted a monopoly on tobacco by the U.S. government. And they've done unbelievable sense, right? What was supposed to be a death knell for tobacco companies was actually a saving grace. And they've done just amazing sense. And the same thing's happening here. You know, we're going to ban the big oil majors from drilling on all these lands, da 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 da, da and we're going to raise the cost of compliance and raise the cost of regulation. Great. All the small guys, you just basically ensured the big companies have monopolies and the big companies don't have to worry about competition for a while. Williams will never have to worry about um, uh, competition for their major oil pipeline that goes up the east coast of the U.S. They will never have a competitor that can build anything to that scale in the southeast to northeast United States. That pipeline will be a cash cow for as long as it operates because of the decisions of the Biden administration. Hey, as a William shareholder, perfect. Love it. We'll dictate pricing on that sucker for the next 40 years. That's awesome. For people who live where that pipeline could service natural, cheaper natural gas to their homes throughout the Midwest, throughout the Northeast, throughout the Southeast, well, that kind of sucks because you're going to be paying higher gas prices. Actually, it really sucks you're going to be paying higher gas prices. But it's going to be great for shareholders. Too often, governments regulate for the headline and they, they don't understand that there are reactions to every action. And those reactions trickle down several levels on what people then have to do to adjust to that reaction. But they got their headline. They satisfied a couple environmental groups. And they, they move on. So uh, I got a question about Bank of America. No intention of selling Bank of America anytime soon. I think Brian Moynihan, I've said it a million. I've said it since we bought the stock and I listened to him and he was dull and boring, but he knew his business inside and out. And he was a straight shooter with no bullshit. And you know, he wasn't the Jamie Dine. It wasn't the flashy bankers, the fold. He wasn't any of those guys from the early 2000s that got in trouble. He was just this boring, straight-laced guy. Um, and he's done an amazing job. And Bank of America is still just plugging along, doing its thing, growing deposits. No reason to sell that anytime soon as far as I'm concerned. I would appreciate a higher dividend, but I understand what they're doing with the stock buyback. It's a delicate balance either way. Um, but, I, you know, I'd like to be a little higher on the dividend scale um, with them right now. Uh, but, I mean, so it's a double-edged short because part of the problem of the dividend 
um, is in that high is because the share price growth has been so strong, right? And that's that's a function of the buyback. So, you know, I I guess uh, you know, that's kind of just bitching a bitch. So I really don't have a huge opinion on that. Um, you know what I'd like to see versus the other things. So, uh, but that's it. That's all for questions. I'll get this posted, and uh, we'll be back next week. Send some questions during the week. I really I really like doing these when I have questions or people want to talk about something. Um, I, I just, you know, uh, it's better than preparing something that, you know, I, I think you might want to hear, but, you know, might, might not resonate with anyone. So, but the next one we'll do, um, based on that question, we'll do a cannabis one on some of the cannabis stocks. I know a lot of people are looking into those. Um, maybe we'll come up with a, a list of those that are the best run operators and you can kind of make your decisions over there. I still don't really plan on investing much in this space other than in the, the glass house Mercer park merger. Um, a couple ones I'm looking at, but, you know, I, we'll see. Um, you know, they tend to react um, way in excess of the market. So, you know, we've been at all-time highs in a lot of things for a very long time. That doesn't tend to last. So, you know, I may wait till the next market pullback to take any kind of serious stakes in those. But, but we'll talk more about that uh, in the next week or so. Have a great weekend, everybody.